Hello, everyone. Hey there, folks. This is Amanda. And this is Rita. And you're listening to I Don't, I Don't Know, know her. her, the podcast where we talk about women and some other folks that you've probably never heard of. And you probably should have. And today you will. So I have a topic I want to talk to you about. Okay. Intrigued. So there was a local business owner, well known for being very feminist, who made a personal post. Uh, and I'm not sure if her profile is public, um, because there were a lot of comments on that post. Okay. So her post was about, it was basically asking a question the way people ask a question when they really, like, they, they couch it in all of this contextual language that tells you what they think. So asking a question, but maybe also asking for validation and the opinion that they're trying to state. Yes. Okay. And hers was specifically about whether or not uh, business owners like herself were going to hire people who had stayed unemployed during the pandemic. What does that matter? Yeah. Okay. She was like, basically like, I don't want to hire somebody who didn't work. She's like, I get it when it was at the beginning, but like, if you're still not working, like, I won't hire you. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> huh. And I was like, what the fuck? And like, as people in the comments pointed out, like, there are lots of reasons why people have not returned to work. I was going to say, that's fairly presumptuous. Like, you're just encapsulating that that person is lazy mm-hmm. and that there was no other factors other than they just wanted to sit on their couch and do nothing. Yes. And, you know, as someone who is a business owner and who runs a supposedly feminist establishment, I was like, that seems pretty fucking anti-woman to me. Because the 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 group that lost the most work mobility over the pandemic were women and specifically women of color mm-hmm. and specifically women who work in service fields. Yeah. Hospitality. And part of that has to do with the fact that their kids were home. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> partly because of children because yeah, they had to be home. Yeah. Like honestly, if my son had not been at the age where he could self sustain his own schedule, I would not have been able to go to work. Exactly. And I don't begrudge anyone having to do that. Or in the case of like, we have a friend who was taking care of an elderly parent during the whole pandemic. Mm -hmm. So they had to quit their job in order to do that. And just recently returned to work because everybody got vaccinated, Mm -hmm. but they could not go to work until everyone was vaccinated. So being considerate and waiting and careful and safe. And then there's also the the idea that, you know, there were probably a lot of people who have for the first time realized maybe the things they were doing, the jobs they were doing, they didn't want to be doing. Mm -hmm. And now they're on a search for a new path to look for a different career. Oh, I know so many people like that. Yeah. Or people who are like, you know what, I'm going to, I, I am going to stay unemployed as long as I can because I make less money at my job. Which is very real. And that says a lot about what you're paying your fucking workers. Yeah. And why would they come back? Exactly. If you don't believe in paying a livable wage, maybe you don't deserve to have a business. Yeah, There you go. 
And also like understandable on the business owner side, I can't pay you that. Then you will not have somebody there to work for you. That's right. It goes both ways. It was just, it was disheartening to see that post. And again, she posed it like it was like, what, what are your thoughts? Are you going to hire these people? And like fishing. And then I was like, you, what you mean is you're not going to. And her, the whole comment stream, you know, when people would point out valid considerations, like people, like parents who had to stay home with their kids because they were not in school or mm-hmm. taking care of elderly or Im- immunocompromised people or they're immunocompromised themselves or whatever the reason might be. That was not like, she was like, okay, sure, but. It's not that easy. I know. I just thought, wow, like. How insensitive. So a year <laughs> from now, if you look at somebody's resume and they have a gap in it because they were taking care of an elderly parent, which is none of your fucking business, you're mm-hmm. just not going to hire them? That's what I was, I was also going to point out. So, okay, you do see a gap and you're going to ask, well, what were you doing the whole time? Like, is that even legal? You can't ask people that. I don't know if that's legal or not, but it seems like it shouldn't be. If no. It, like, you should not be able to ask why there's a gap. I mean, because what if what if it was because somebody had been raped and they were recovering from the trauma? Mm-hmm. That's none of your fucking business. It's none business. of your business. No, Why I don't think you get to, to ask gap? people that. What if you're backpacking through Europe? Who fucking cares? It's not. <laughs> it's not your business. <laughs> I actually literally had an interview experience way back in the day, where I I had a very long stint of volunteering, which I love volunteering, and that's like what I used to do all throughout high school and in my early twenties. And so I was getting interviewed for a job and I was like, oh yeah, I was like, I volunteered for this and I volunteered for that. And the interviewer just saw her eyes hit the back of her skull and roll at me. Like, you weren't working, you were volunteering. Yeah. What? I still got the fucking job because I was an ace, but I saw the disdain of like, <sighs> literally on her face in front of me. Oh, I'm so sorry that I give back to my community. <laughs> But the judgment, it's like, you don't get to judge how I spend my time. I'm here to work right now. Yeah, I don't, I, I guess I just, I, to me, the, this situation in particular, but I think a lot of the times when I see this, like if it's a business owner that voted for Trump, like whatever, you're an idiot. But if it's somebody like this who has, is on the, you know, we have a lot more in common than we do not in common Mm -hmm. that is the exact moment when i'm like oh there's that white feminism there it is you've got that line that one line that's drawn in the sand yeah it is it is definitely that like i don't i only care about my needs Mm -hmm. and that is the epitome of white feminism and like that is the thing that drives me bananas like we need to all get past that yeah there are there are more reasons to be feminist than for white women. <laughs> In fact, all of the reasons maybe. Also too, it makes me question like are you just wearing that for money? You know, client like the extra clientele. No, I mean to- no, they got like blackballed cuz you know, they like put black lives matter signs in their windows. Yeah. Hmm. That's why it was a- That's confusing. Exactly. But again, that's why I was like 
you have that, like, there are those people who can have, like, they can say all the right things and they think them in theory, but then when it comes actually down to real stuff, like who you're going to hire, you are not following through with your actual, mm-hmm. like, th- you're not actually that ethical. That's not there for you. When it gets too there's uncomfortable, you can't just walk away. Mm-hmm. It's got to be all the way through. Yeah. There's a disconnect there between what she says are her values and what she does as her values. See, and and for me, like, I don't understand that judgment. Like, I, and also, like, the willingness to pry, yeah. I would never go there. So, if I was interviewing somebody for a job and they were like, yeah, I haven't worked in eight months I'd be like, yeah, well, I have. And also, we are both in hell. (laughs) So, I I, don't really care. Yeah, and I I don't think... I I think what she was saying is she would probably just outright reject a a resume that had that gap in it during the pandemic. That's crap. Oh, it's it's garbage. I don't like it. Yeah. And also, way to put yourself up here and put someone down there. Like, you're so much better... Than somebody else? There's an elitism there, a classism that is pretty gross, which again is rooted in white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And I just, yeah, to me, that was just really not cool. I didn't, I didn't care for it. And now I'm like really bummed because I'm like, I don't want to go to your establishment. I feel like we've lost a lot of establishments. (laughs) I know it's, it's really hard. It is hard. The only reason I thought maybe you would you would have something to say cuz I know that you are your the place you work at is struggling to get enough people to work. Oh, heck yes. There is like an employee shortage. Definitely. What do you think the cause of the employee shortage is? Um I I feel like it definitely comes down to money at the end of the day. Because like you said, if somebody's making more on unemployment than they are from doing a full-time job with more effort, emotional, physical effort, why would you choose that? And also the amount of, I feel like it's, it's hit the industry the hardest. Yeah. The industry business, restaurants, bars, clubs, because it is a business that is based on socializing Mm -hmm. and as bartenders and servers and cooks you're on you're spending that energy and you get that paycheck and you felt like you earned it but when you took all the people away you like took part of us away i also was thinking about how terrible everybody was it got really awful and so much pressure Mm -hmm. and people didn't understand and it's a running joke worldwide in the service industry that we are just punching bags and we joke about it and we drink about it. And we, at the end of the day, cash our checks and we're still happy. But when you take all the people away and you really get to the bare bones, you're like, what am I doing? Yeah. Why, why am I doing this to myself? That's what it makes me feel like is happening right now is that there's a little bit of a reckoning for folks who are like, I don't want to return to that. No, and a lot of people don't because then even when we came back for the first time, being very careful, trying to make it work, isolating ourselves to have customers just walk in with masks around their chin. 
Yeah. And just like, it's like little tiny stab wounds. And when you just like, you realize you don't matter. Yeah. You're not essential. So then we closed down again. Then we came back again, still being really careful, isolating ourselves. None of the same response. And so people are just like, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. I I think that there are many, many very good reasons to not be working right now. The only thing that has completely grounded me in staying where I am is my bosses because they've completely and entirely the whole way through taken care of me and what I needed. That's awesome. And that doesn't, that's not for everybody else. Yeah. And kudos to them for doing that. And then I think, you know, gosh, it's hard out there. Yeah. It's hard to find people that are good to work for. Yeah. I think that's a big, that's a big part of it. Well, who do you have for me today? Oof. Speaking of the working class. Yeah. <laughs> have you heard of Ingie Eflatoon? No. <laughs> no? Not even I really a thought you might have had an inkling for what, this. How do, you, how do you say it? Ingie Eflatoon. What, what is that? Is that French? She was an Egyptian painter, writer, activist, journalist, and the pioneer of modern Egyptian art. Wow. Yeah. No, I've definitely not heard of shit. this person. <laughs> That's why I had to listen to her name again, because I, it was really hard for me to pronounce. So it's spelled I-N-J-I. N-G. Okay, N-G. Okay. So N-G was born in Cairo on April 16th, 1924. She had an older sister, Bully, which was a nickname. I couldn't find her real name. Um, both the girls were born into an aristocratic family. Her father's name was Hassan Eflatoun, and he was a scientist who established the Department of Entomology at the University of Cairo. Oh. Yeah. Smart people. Yeah. And her mother, Sala, was surprisingly very independent, especially for women during this time. Um, Her mother had divorced Hassan when she was just 19 years old and traveled to Paris to study fashion. Uh, When she came back, she opened up and ran her own boutique called Maison Salah, and it was the first tailoring shop owned and run by a woman. This is very impressive. Yes. Also that she's had two kids by 19. Uh, that's what I was just about to be like, wait, 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 wait. Can we back that train up and, and tell me again how old were they when she got married? I don't know. I don't know how old her mother was when she married her father, but she had two kids by the age of 19. And it did say when they divorced, the girls were very young. So I'm thinking like maybe 15. three and four. So maybe 14, 15, she got married. I don't like that. Me neither. And I... Remind me again of what year Inji, you said Inji was born. 1924. 1924. So as a young girl, Inji was drawn to and had a very amazing talent for art. According to a New York Times article written by Myrna Ayad, Inji was continually encouraged by both of her parents to draw, and her father would even have her come and sketch some of the insect, insects at the university. Oh, cool. And I'm I'm imagining like too like her mother is a designer. She's into fashion, so I'm I'm sure she like had a very artistic home. Yeah, I would I would imagine. Yeah, if her mom is creative, so her parents are not together. No, 
Okay. I wonder what that was like at that point. Like, who did she live with her mother? So her dad had a whole lot of money. Okay. So she was raised by a staff. Okay. So she probably lived with her dad. I think they went back and forth because throughout like researching her, the parents were both there. Huh. It wasn't like her mother just took off. Like she did. Well, she did go to Paris, but then she came back and opened her shop. But they were still very involved with their daughters. Okay. Both her and her sister were would accompany their father on like little field trips. Angie would always bring her sketch pad in tow. Her life as a young girl was very privileged. They had a <laughs> lot of money. <laughs> and her family, being very wealthy, prestigious, of course, the girls had access to education. Like mm-hmm. that always seems to go hand in hand in the threads that we find. Oh, yeah. I, I think there's no greater example of why privilege exists. Like access. You, yeah. Complete. It, it literally is like if you have money, you get a better education and you get a better education. You have better job opportunities. You have a better life. And then if you have better <laughs> job opportunities, you have the option of like building wealth, like with property Being ownership. Successful. And then you pass that down and there's generational wealth. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens. So at the time... Uh, the Cairo that Inji was experiencing was very different from the Cairo that other Egyptian people were living in, especially in the rural areas and the working class. Um, I'm not quite sure at what exa- what exact age she was at when she was enrolled into a very prestigious college called the College du Sacré-Cœur. I tried really <laughs> hard. Also, her family was fluent in French. Okay. This was a French... Was that, did the French colonize Egypt? I have no idea. They did. Napoleon. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Napoleon. <laughs> so, this was a French Catholic institution in Cairo. I know that she was at least slightly younger than 14 when she started going to this school. Um, this school was widely known for heavy discipline with the students, Ooh. which you know what that means. Yeah, that means they beat them. Yep. And Angie called it my first prison. Oh, no. Yeah. Does that mean there's more? Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the school was extremely strict and actually was really openly discriminative towards the Egyptian nuns that were there and the Egyptian students that attended the school. Oh, so it favored... French people. Yes. Okay. This environment for Angie didn't do it for her. She became extremely defiant and a little bit of a troublemaker. One thing that she did that (laughs) seems like not probably a very big deal to us, but was for her, she would purposely read the books that the school had banned the children from reading. (laughs) And there's nothing more dangerous than a book. Oh, I know it. As a librarian, I'm very well aware. Heck yes. So I don't know if she was able to leave or if they forced her to leave, but she eventually transferred to a more liberal school. The French and like, I don't know if it's Leachy or Lisi. It's L-Y-C, a little accent over the E and then another E. Is that Lisi? I don't know. Our French Why is terrible. Why are you asking me? I said I lion looked- for an entire episode. 
I'm just going to, or maybe lice I don't know. Lice? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say Lisey. If I'm wrong, somebody please prove me wrong in our DMs. Yeah, tell us, tell us. <laughs> While she was at this new school, she began receiving private art lessons and tutoring from a man named Kamal L. Telmasani. He was a noted artist, critic, poet. He was a political activist, and he was a filmmaker. Whoa, he's got his hands in a lot of buckets. Oh, hell yeah. He was also the co-founder of the leftist, communist, and anti-imperialist group called Art and Liberty. And it was a surrealist collective. Egyptian surrealism began around like the early 1930s and this art was in direct opposition to the rise of the fascism and nationalism that was happening in Europe and it was against British colonial rule and Cairo's oppressive and conservative artistic scene it was it was very traditional mm. so this was like total shock value art Artists were living in a time with war and terror alongside growing militant nationalism in Egypt. This new style of art was holding, basically holding up a magnifying glass to the struggles and pain of the middle class and the lower class Egyptians, which the government did not want anybody amplifying that. They wanted to make sure that everyone just thought everything was normal. Mm. So they were suppressing that. Yes, absolutely. I mean... What else is the government good for? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Angie found herself smack dab in the middle of these avant-garde, politically active and outspoken artists and intellectuals. Um, She began learning about Marxist theories, which sent her down the road towards completely disowning her elitist background and trying to support the working class Egyptians, which reminds me a little bit of like Frida Kahlo. Yeah, it also reminds me of... Of our last one, Kitty Cohn. Oh, yeah. Who came from the super wealthy background and just was like, nope. <laughs> no, like, I'm, I'm, this is not me. Mm-hmm. So, along with teaching her about, well, he taught her about Marxism, communism. He also started teaching her about cubism and surrealism. Mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan of cubism. No. No. It's just. I'm a little bit more into like a free-flowing kind of art. And cubism is just like, to me, slightly limiting. But that's just for me, personally. Uh, Surrealism, I have a hard time wrapping my brain around. Because it's so out there? Yeah. I, Especially when I was in grad school, there were a few people who were really into surrealism. And like I would take, I, I, I took classes on surreal poetry and stuff like that, surreal literature. And I just had a, I had a harder time with it because it didn't have as much grounding in it for me. I'm as if we couldn't tell from this show, I'm really into stories. I'm really Mm -hmm. into people's stories and finding humanity and that kind of stuff in stories. So I have a harder time connecting to things that are intentionally removed from that humanity that are like intended to make you make you feel removed. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's harder for me. I do like some of the surrealism in painting. Mm-hmm. That I like. More visual. Yeah. Yeah, literature in that way is a little bit... It's hard for it's me. It's very hard. So her tutor, Kamal, was able to teach her about the plight of their fellow Egyptian people. Something that Inji never was exposed to. And she actually ended up harboring like a lot of anger. 
because of it. She felt like she had been like so sheltered that she felt lied to by her family mm. and by her father and mother and made to think that the world is, she believed in a world that was this one way. And when she learned how devastating it was the other way, she was so angry. Yeah, she felt like she'd had the wool pulled over her eyes. Huh? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, Faten Mostafa, an art researcher and founder of the Cairo Gallery Art Talks, said this about her. She had an anger and an urge to be set free as a result of her shelter and privilege. Cellophane-wrapped upbringing. Eltimisani helped her translate this anger into surreal and imaginary, powerful worlds that defy time and space. So he really guided her and says, you're mad? Then put it into your work. And so uh, what kind of art is she making at this point? She's, she's a surrealist artist. Yeah, like is she painting? Is she sculpting? Is she... She's painting. Okay. And these are rather large paintings as well. Not really like small little portrait ones or anything like that. I would say if you could take a look at them, like maybe six to five feet canvases. Yeah, like big gallery wall type yeah. canvases. Which I feel like always surrealist art is very big. Big, yeah. Because I feel like they're trying to bring you into that picture. In 1942, when she was only 18, she joined a group called Iskra. And it was a communist youth group. That same year, she also took part in a Art and Liberty exhibition. You got it! Yes, I did. <laughs> um, they only had five shows, but she was the youngest among 24 artists that were featured. Impressive. Her surrealist work often showed atypical compositions of a young suffering girl trying to escape and discover herself. A lot of her imagery was about her liberating herself from mm. social, social, patriarchal, and colonial burdens of the time. Wow. And what year is this? This is like 1942. Wow. It's impressive. Could you imagine, though, being such a young person and you're, you're in this group of these people that just have these radical ideas and you're fired up and you're angry and you want to make a difference like, it sounds like a pretty exciting time to me. I know. It really does. I've been thinking about eras and and the the way in which real change was made. And because I kind of feel like, we're, you know, most of us are just spinning our wheels right now. Yeah. I wish I could be part of something like that, where you're really making specific changes. I think she just hit like the right recipe of... I mean, as her being younger in school, she already had a little rebellious edge to her. Mm -hmm. And then finding this anger of like, oh, my God, I've been lied to. But then given an avenue of like, how can I make a difference? Yeah. And then a group of people. Like, but yeah, there's also like this movement in art that is happening, not just there, not just in Egypt. It was worldwide. It was global art oh, movement. Yeah. You know, that's what's cool is that it was like, it was like it was almost spontaneously happening in multiple locations. Mm -hmm. It really wasn't like, you know, one artist had visited another and then it was like, wow, this this thing that this person was no, doing was amazing. No, it was amazing. this rise of people but who were like just so freaking many. over it. And, and like the rise of Marxism and communism, Trotskyism, mm -hmm. like that's all happening right then. Like that's... In was, different continents. <laughs> yes. 
I mean, wh- how wild to have that kind of like sea change. And then being so young too, I just like that. Like I would want to just grab a gas can and freaking burn it to yeah, the ground. I, I'm, I think that the world is really lucky that I grew up in Eastern Montana <laughs> and not San Francisco or something. I agree. I would have been a tyrant. Hellraiser. So in 1945, this is about three years after she graduated, she went to the University of Cairo. She became the first woman ever to study in the art department there. (laughs) Why? In 1945. I'm so sorry. Why? Like, I should just be impressed, but I just immediately wanted to cry. Why is she the first? Why is there ever that in the ninth? It's like the 20th century. Good God. Right. So while going to school, she also studied underneath um, other renowned artists like Margot Vion and Hamad Abdallah. I'm not going to pretend like I know who these artists are, but I did look at their work. It's amazing. They were quite profound and they were influential. Okay. So for her to be able to study under these people was a really good, like, one thing I noticed, like, throughout the the research that I did about her, a lot of art galleries talk about the journey of her style. So it started off when she was really young, not as great. And then as she studied under people and Mm -hmm. as she goes through what I'm going to talk about later, she really refines something into something truly original. So a lot of journey through her actual painting itself. Yeah, I think you can see that in a lot of artists' work. Oh, yeah. Angie traveled to ancient towns such as Luxor, the Nile Delta, and rural areas in Nubia. There she witnessed and painted the men and women at work plowing, harvesting, weaving, and selling goods. Her mother really pleaded with her to come to Paris. She was like, you have an immense talent. I think you should go and get some training in Paris, like under other Paris artists. Yeah, yeah, artists. And Angie said this about her mother's kind of attempt to try to get her to do that. It was very tempting to go to a good academy, but I refused completely. With five or ten years of Parisian study, I would be a better artist, but I would know nothing of my country, Mm. and then it would be too late. Now I began to understand my roots to be Egyptianized. Oh, I love that. Instead of being colonized. Exactly. (laughs) So she became more actively political. She started publishing her own popular, like, People love these, her own manifestos, in collaboration with a group of women with the purpose of demanding support for women's rights and peace. Yay. She began, she became one of the founding members of the League of University and Institutes of Young Women. Okay. I, the name was weird to me. I feel like it was awkward. wrong. Yeah, I read that over and over and I was like, I feel like somebody missed A word. A word. (laughs) An article. (laughs) Uh, She joined the Women's Committee for Popular Resistance and Youth and the Committee of the Egyptian Feminist Union. Within all these groups, she helped write and distribute pamphlets, which we know the power of the pamphlet. 
trying to organize people to rise up and demand change from the government. Two of her most popular political pamphlets were called 80 Million Women and Us and We Egyptian Women. I love this. <laughs> yes. She was never stopped. She never stopped. She was continually writing, organizing, getting people together, creating her own art, having discussions. Like she was on fire. Mm. That sounds exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, her writings linked class and gender oppression directly to the imperialist oppression that was happening to Egypt. Yes. yes. <laughs> she was like, hey, can you see the link? Oh. <laughs> um, speaking out openly against the government and being openly communist, Angie was taking a really big fucking risk with her own life. Oh, I know. Because communism had just been made illegal. Yeah, I mean, man, people, the backlash against communism. Yes. Um, her artwork became increasingly more political as she started writing more and being more active with her groups. Um, in the 1950s, she organized several exhibitions of her work, simultaneously denouncing the ravages of colonialism. Yeah. And the oppression of women in Egypt, as well as celebrating the Egyptian workforce, which that was one thing I found. I feel like maybe I'm being dumb. What is the purpose of the government belittling the Egyptian rural workforce so much? Is it the same way that the U.S. devalues the immigrant worker? I think it also has a lot to do with if... So, if Egypt is colonized by the French, then yeah. more than likely the people who have been in charge were French or or then became French Egyptians, mm -hmm. you know? Which and is basically so, her family. And so that is also, that's also a race problem, right? Like, it's very similar to what happened in Brazil. So, in Brazil, there's like a really big colorism problem. Okay. Because... When Brazil was colonized, everybody that was white or light-skinned became the people in charge. And so the darker-skinned you were, the more likely you were to work in rural, low-wage jobs and live in a favela. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. This is the pattern of colonialism. Period. Elevating white supremacy and devaluing people of color and the work they but do. But still keeping a workforce and keeping production happening, therefore making money to put in their pockets. Yes. Okay. And also it's a great way to take middle class people and make them feel like they're different from that. Mm -hmm. And the best way to keep people poor and oppressed is to make the people closest to them think they're better. Mm -hmm. So if you're devaluing the work and the people... Then it makes everybody who doesn't do that work and aren't those people feel like they have power, even if that is not false true. It's, ma it's just magical thinking. Ugh. It's disgusting. Well, she was holding solo exhibits that were held in Cairo and Alexandria. Hey, hey, that's where Hypatia was from. Yay! <laughs> and showed um, different shows at the Venice Binali and the Sao Paulo Art Biennial. I hope I said that right. I probably didn't. <laughs> um, I thought this little nugget of information was pretty wild to me. 
During the 1950s, she meets Mexican painter David Alfaro Siqueiros. I don't know if you've heard of him. I have not. Um, he he was part of a group who did work called um, Social Realism. And he was part of the Mexican Communist Party and one of Mexico's most famous muralists of all time. He's literally as famous as Diego Rivera, That's but not as talked about. Um, he's His artwork, he's not my favorite person, but I like his artwork. Um, so him and uh, Inji become friends. Down the road, they influence each other's work. So his, like I said, his work is Are one of my favorite. Friend friends? No, they're just friends. Okay. Um, she has a husband in there somewhere. <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of talk about him. Eh, he died really fast. Not to do, say he wasn't worth anything, but there just wasn't a whole lot of information. Yeah. But she did have a husband in there somewhere. Um, I was just really... Like looking at her later work and then like looking at his work after they met each other, I was like, holy shit, I could totally see the influence that they had on each other. Huh. It was really cool. Um, so I didn't know that they knew each other, which I thought was really neat. Um, towards the late 1950s, the president of Egypt, Gamal Nasser, he's an asshole. Mm. Uh, he led an overthrow of the Egyptian monarchy, and he banned all political parties. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. His power grab was for soul power. And he began to heavily enforce the law that communism and Egyptian socialism was illegal. Oh, no. Yep. So, Inji continued her work, but as Nassar cracked down and began arresting people... She went underground and started to disguise herself as a peasant so that she would not be arrested. Um, Nassau eventually found her in 1959, and he secretly arrested her along with 25 other female political activists. Oh, he specifically was targeting women activists. Yes. Cool. She would end up being in prison for four and a half years. Oh. I'm sure that the prison was just delightful, too. No. So, from June 1959 to July 1964, it was there, she said, she witnessed the harsh realities of life. Yeah. She said, women behind bars, in disgusting conditions, tiny cells, being subjected to horrific treatment. Um, despite the conditions, Ng was secretly able to continue painting. Oh, she was taking, <laughs> yeah, she was taking risks to secure permission to paint. Amid, like, she was supposed to be under strict censorship. Yeah, no kidding. But she initially kind of received permission to keep painting outside of the jail. Like, they were like, you can set up, you can sell stuff, but all the money was going to go to the jail. So they wanted to use her to make money for the jail. But, like, they were letting her out? Well, I mean, she was with guard. Like, she was yeah, just that there. that seems so. so strange, doesn't it? I don't know. What a weird system. This sounds more like a POW than it does... Like an like actual a, a prisoner. Prison. Yeah. Um, she... Nobody wanted to buy her stuff. They were just like, no. Like, she she was unsuccessful in, like, trying to sell art for the jail. I don't know if they did it because, like, fuck the jail. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was with her... Her sister, Bully, and a guard were able to help kind of do this shady little dealing to keep her painting. 
um, her sister would smuggle in canvas for her and then she would be able to paint and then the guard would wrap the art around her body and would smuggle it outside and give it to Bully and then Bully would pay the guard. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, was the guard only doing that for the money? Yes. Okay. Seems Um, like a big risk though, even for money. Could you imagine though, in those times, if you're desperate, the things that people do. Mm -hmm. Um, So in... Angie's memoir, she writes this about being able to smuggle her art in and out. I had removed the canvas from the wooden stretcher and give it to one of the wardens who would wrap it around her body under her clothes. I was worried they'd discover how we were smuggling them out, as this could result in me being completely banned from painting, a right that I had won by only one miracle. There was one warden who was particularly good at smuggling. We called her the express train. She would deliver the paintings to my sister in return for a sum of money. Some of the doctors also helped me because they were not subject to inspection. Oh, so like the doctors would come treat them. Yeah. So I feel like some people too maybe did this underground, like to still be able to get her art and her message out there yeah it feels like the doctors had like no real interest in you know what i mean like they probably weren't doing it as much for money as it was for her Mm -hmm. art to get out in the world even though like she said by some miracle they were allowing her to paint the sadness of being in jail with all of these other women who are being treated so badly it started to like chip away at her and like her mental health And this is what she said about trying to stay inspired about jail. This is a fairly long quote, but I really, it's important. Some two or three months after I arrived in prison, I felt a desire to paint and with it came a refusal to surrender to the status quo. I would go up on the roof of the building and paint anything I could find, eventually painting the inmates. One of the most important subjects I painted from inside the prison was Inshira, who had been sentenced to death, but her execution had been postponed for one year until her baby was weaned. (gasps) Those sentenced to be executed were placed in a cell under special guard so they wouldn't commit suicide, and they wore red uniforms. While awaiting Inshira's execution, I felt the massive tragedy of her story as she had killed and stolen under the pressure of extremely harsh conditions and overwhelming misery. When I asked a painter, the director of the prison told me that that would be very depressing. I did indeed paint her and her son. This was one of the paintings that was confiscated by the criminal investigation department. They took her painting. No. Yeah. I I mean, not that I want to see that painting necessarily, because I do think it would be very tragic, but I also want to see it. Like, I want to see... You want to see that face. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's important to capture that kind of tragedy. So these were, like, this is just one story, but for the four and a half years she was in there, she was seeing, from her side, these women coming to prison being accused of crimes because they were desperate Mm. and they were trying to make things work or they had somebody that had attacked them and they killed them or something. And these women were put up for execution. Mm. 
So just the oppression that she witnessed and like trying to document it, the like the people who have art galleries now in Egypt say that like probably her work in the prison was the most important work that she did because she documented the the abuse and the tragedy of what was happening to women at that time. Did you get to see some of it? I did. What were your thoughts? They were, um, the faces were very angry. Mm. Yeah. A lot of contemplative stances, a lot of face on where you're just like not given anywhere else to look, but these women's faces. Mm. So I think she really was just holding up the mirror and saying, these are who these people are and this is what they're going through. These are humans. Exactly. And like good on her for like getting that art freaking smuggled out. (laughs) It's, it was important because these are real people. Yeah. So she continued to paint. Um, this is the part where I said where she started refining her skills. She was just trying to keep herself from not going insane. So she would practice and just try to get better at her lines, her shadowing, her composition, just to keep her mind somewhere else. She wanted to be eventually freed. And in 1963, she got her wish. Uh, Khrushchev was scheduled to come to Egypt for a visit. And as an act of good faith, uh, Nasser released all political prisoners. Hmm. And so by this time she was released, though, the Egyptian Communist Party had been completely obliterated, dissolved, no longer there. A year after being set free, Angie held a solo show at Cairo's Akhenaton Gallery and received a grant from the Ministry of Culture. Wow. Well, I mean, (laughs) that's an about face on the government's part. Oh, yeah. So after she was released in 1963, um, her style became very much like lighter, more joyful, a lot more vibrant color. There was a period where she was painting in black and white only. And it was very harsh and, and severe. Yeah. And then after she got out of jail... It became like more fluid, more joyful. She did a lot of paintings that showed like a play on light. Did she address that change? Um, the play on light paintings were had to do a lot with trees. And she said that she felt like trees were the perfect symbol for humanity. Because mm. trees will twist and bend and break and grow and die. And so she, like, when she was in prison, she painted one tree over and over and over again. Almost like Georgia O'Keeffe with her front door. Where <sighs> she painted that, she painted that, what, 25 times? I, I didn't, I don't even remember that. Um, But it was a, she, like, Georgia O'Keeffe painted her front door 25, 30 times, but at a different time every day. So the huh. shadows were different, but it was the same door. And so she painted this tree over and over and over again, like through the seasons, through different times of day. So you could see all the different plays in light. And I think she was just trying to like really show like if she believed that those were people, the changes that can happen throughout time. Yeah. This is just my broad scope. <laughs> I also like there's all of that imagery across art about the tree of life and giving life and yeah. 
I think too the prisoners too saw her painting this tree like over and over again. So they just called it Ingie's tree, which was <laughs> what all the paintings are called that. It's just Ingie's tree. She started to like alongside with painting with vibrant colors, she began to depict um, a lot of countryside, daily life of Egyptian workers. She was able to hold exhibitions in Rome, Paris, Dresden, Warsaw, Moscow, and several other other European cities. Huh. In her late late career in the 1980s, her patterned textured strokes became a little bit more pure. They said a little bit more progressive because she started taking the color out and sh- and playing more with empty space, almost like how you do with watercolors. Huh. Okay. You got when you paint watercolors, you got to think of the negative space first, then you fill in your color. Um she ended up dying in Cairo on April 17th in 1989. She was 65. So she was alive when we were alive. Yeah. But Her, she, that seems a little young. 65 is pretty young. Um, what I could find, she didn't have any children. Like I said, her husband had died. He had a very, they had a very brief marriage. Um, her works can be found in a permanent collection at Amar Taz Palace in medieval Cairo, where more than 80 of her works are collected and on display. And a lot of her personal items too are on display. Also in the collection of Mataf, Arab Museum of Modern Art in Dona and the Museum of Egyptian Modern Art in Cairo. Um, I really like this quote from Sultan Al-Qasemi from Mideast Art. They said this about her. Through her activism, her manifesto, her paintings, and her writings, Enji Eflatun represented the poor, the forgotten, and the downtrodden. Even decades later, it is rare to come by an artist who has depicted topics as varied as this female prisoner. Palestinian freedom fighter and working class laborers with such depth and humanity. Hmm. And that's it. Hmm. That's pretty fitting for right now, honestly. Right. Yeah. I, I like that. I never heard of her at all. So thank you for bringing her to the show. I really do. Like, I was really like, I love artists and I was like, oh yeah, she did a lot of great things, but um, so many of the art galleries that have shown her art saying that the most important pieces of her were when she was doing that, when she was in prison. Yeah. Because nobody would have known if she didn't take the risk to document it. And that's pretty, it's, it's also like that, that must've been her lifeline in terms of like keeping herself going. But also, like, it continued the work she was doing in trying to really highlight the plight of the poor and working class. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the con- like the continuous wheel of the human folly is like we forget all the time, yeah, of the the cycle that we go through. So if we have stuff to look back on and be like, oh my gosh, possibly, hopefully, somebody's inspired. To stop it? Yeah, I feel like that is exactly something that we do on the show. 
the amount of times when we have such a similar story, Mm -hmm. you know, the nuances are different, but the overarching problem with something like colonialism or classism or racism, it all has such similar themes to it. And we just keep repeating it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I hope we finally stop doing that. And even now, um, a lot of the galleries in Egypt, there is quite like a renaissance that happened in like the early 2000s to even now of young Egyptian artists who are bringing her artwork and other Egyptian artists of that day who are part of that group that she was in when she was 18 to kind of revitalize. These were the people that kind of laid the foundation of like why Egypt is where it is today. Well, and there was that huge Egyptian revolution. Mm Mm-hmm. What was that, 2010? I think so. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Maybe it was even like 2014. What is time? <laughs> a con- <laughs> it a happened construct. in my lifetime. <laughs> I thought it was yesterday. So, But I liked, um, too, like when she studied about like the French Revolution and the invasion of Napoleon, she was like, holy shit, they took it out from underneath us. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I think that's why she was so angry. Yeah, she became radicalized by the by the facts of her of her country Mm -hmm. that's how i feel well the information um or where i got my information was a profile on aware women artist by sophia gary i found a profile on overlook no more by mirna ayad for the new york times hope is contagious in prison by Susie. Sikorsky for Mideast Art, Inji Eflatoon in Prison, Painting the Unrenewable by Nadine Atala, Inji Eflatoon After Prison, an article by Safrakan Art Gallery, and then Wikipedia for those good old-fashioned timelines. Yeah, that's like the only thing to use it for. Oh yeah, <laughs> so all they double, had was dates. Double-check dates. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, this is our last episode of the season. Yay! So, uh, we just want to tell you, if you are a patrons, Patreon subscriber, you are going to still get content. So, if you want to continue to hear our great, wonderful content, you should also subscribe. We will return probably sometime late August, early September. It's kind of weather dependent because the place that we record is a hot box. <laughs> and... <laughs> If it's really hot, we can't record. <laughs> Literally, or we everything just will melt. Won't. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we we are definitely gonna try to ride out that season and make sure that we have our space a little bit better. But we will still record stuff for Patreon subscribers. So make sure you go on Patreon.com and look for IDK her podcast. Definitely do that because you're gonna need something to listen to over the summer. You know, you will. Might as well. And you can uh, send us your requests for things you might want us to talk about on our bonus episodes. We'll definitely put out at least one, probably two a month while we're on our hiatus. And if you're finishing this episode with us, thank you so much for hanging in for season three. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this has been a hell of a ride this season. Mm -hmm. And we love every one of you. Thank you for supporting us. Um, If you want to buy our merch, you can still go on TeePublic. And, uh, of course, Patreon. You can get free merch if you subscribe. Thank you again to our editor, Lucas McIntyre, for sticking with us for another season. 
And thank you to Jennifer Finch. And uh, next season we'll have some cool new equipment, which we're very excited about. Yay. Okay, so 20... No, we're not. It's not next year. It's not. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be like, you know, know, 12 weeks from now. (laughs) No. What is time? (laughs) Exactly. What is time? (laughs) All right, folks. Thank you for everything. We'll see you next season. Bye.